Welcome to National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast, which takes a look at the NDIS in action for service providers. I'm David Moody, NDS Victorian State Manager, and today we're discussing reporting on outcomes and when it's done well, the impact this has on people with disability. When you think of reporting, what comes to mind for you? I think for many people, reporting is often linked to laborious documents, stats, data and long hours behind a computer. It's true that reporting can sometimes be this way, but when reporting on progress towards NDIS goals, your participants' report for an NDIS participant can impact their life. Under the NDIS, reporting can influence decisions about funding for services that enable people to achieve their goals. These reports have the power to influence both positively and negatively the continuation of supports that aim to enable people to live independently, learn new skills and gain employment. So, it's not just important that our sector knows how to accurately report on outcomes, it is critical. And to make your outcome report count, you'll need to not only take an accurate approach, but a personalised one. NDIS funding for a person with disability tracks progress against the outcomes-based framework, which means reporting on outcomes is imperative for supporting participants to get the supports they need. Today we discuss how to get specific and the role innovation and measurement tools play in reporting. So let's get into it and start talking reporting. I'm joined by Pascal Dreyer, NDS's NDIS Transition Advisor, and our studio guest today is award-winning innovator Dr Stella Karitsis, Manager Strategic Research at NDS member Scope Australia. Stella will be telling us about the recently launched tool called MISO, used to measure outcomes in the disability sector. MISO is an acronym for Measuring Impact and Service Outcomes. Welcome to the studio, Pascal and Stella. Thanks, David. Hello. Hi, David. G'day, Stella. Great to have you here. Great to have you as always, Pascal. Pascal, I might throw to you first with respect, Stella, if you don't mind. So, Pascal, what are the NDIA's requirements for providers in terms of reporting on outcomes and why is reporting on outcomes so important? Certainly. So, it will vary according to the types of support you deliver, but generally the NDIA will require, or if not the NDIA, the support coordinator or the LAC will ask for information from a provider around, all right, what did you do over the past, say, 12 months, if the plan is 12 months long? What did you achieve? How did you support the individual to achieve their outcomes? Certainly, therapists and support coordinators and other key capacity building supports are required to write that end of year or end of plan report, which essentially details how the support supported that individual to achieve outcomes, identify any future support needs and identify any barriers that they encountered in supporting that individual. It is a fair chunk of work and I think that's it's why it's quite timely to have Stella here as well because one of, I suppose, the key edicts about the NDIS is really about increasing business efficiency for providers. To be able to efficiently capture and measure outcomes can be quite a challenge if you don't really know where to start and if you don't really know what you're measuring. I think previously the disability sector, from a funding perspective, has been more focused on outputs rather than outcomes. So, you know, when they're reporting to government, it's about how many people did you see, not 
did you support that person to achieve their goals? Not saying that people haven't been tracking outcomes and haven't been working towards outcomes, but it's about that shift of focus from a funding perspective. We're actually reporting on outcomes rather than outputs. Well, under I, the think, NDIS. I, think, I think we would concede that as a sector, because we haven't been funded historically to deliver particular outcomes, that in fairness, the sector has, in fact, if you like, adopted the default position of at least being able to report on outputs. Outcomes is for our sector, certainly since 2013, but only since that time. Outcomes, uh, if you like, if not a new concept, certainly one which we've had to come to embrace in order to actually ensure we understand what's being achieved with and for people with disability under the scheme. The department did roll out well before the NDIS. They did roll out a bit of an outcomes framework for providers, but it was. I think the key difference there is that providers had to report against outputs. Now they're reporting against outcomes, just as you highlighted. And I think drawing further on why reporting on outcomes is so important Beyond anything else and beyond, you know, that broader intent of the scheme itself, if providers are sufficiently and appropriately reporting on outcomes, that actually informs the NDIA's decision on funding for that individual's future plan. So, for example, if a support coordinator were to say in their provider report, you know, I helped the person implement their plan, this is what we did with the funding, but that's all they did. All they said is, you know, I supported this person to link up with their personal care provider, link up with their capacity building provider, and this is what the outcomes that those different providers achieved. By doing that, they're not actually doing themselves a service enough to indicate how they have actually built that individual's capacity. So then there's a risk that the agency might read that report and say, well, from a value for money perspective, actually the LAC can do that job because the support coordinator hasn't listed in their report explicitly enough or detailed enough, you know, in my role as a support coordinator, this is how I supported the individual to build their capacity. And if I wasn't able to do so... This is why. These are the barriers. Okay, and so how are um, the reporting of outcomes important for participants then? I mean, why should they care? About the outcomes. The reports themselves influence funding decisions for future plans. So if the report is insufficient, that could have a negative impact on the funding that you might receive. So some of the reports that we've also heard from the agency, and this was perhaps a couple of months ago, is that therapists were not including enough about future recommendations. Mm in their report. So, you know, they listed everything that they've done, etc., but didn't actually then say for this individual to continue achieving this goal or for their future goals, this is how many hours of, say, occupational therapy they might need. Right. I think another key element to draw on in terms of why reporting on outcomes and why outcomes themselves are important for participants The NDIS broadly provides a wonderful opportunity for participants to think really creatively about how they want to be supported to achieve their goals. So in the sense of if they're able to understand what outcomes they want to achieve and understand how they're going to measure those outcomes, they can then put a case forward to the agency to say, actually, I want more funding for that because look at what this has helped me achieve. I might bring Stella into the conversation here, um, given your background working for a disability service provider and with one. I suppose another element is, of course, that knowing the outcomes that a provider is achieving for the participants with whom they're working would heavily influence, you would expect over time, the choices that people with disability are making in terms of 
where they take their business, so to speak, and where they actually go to to get the services mm. they require. Absolutely. And I think that that's the key point. So people with disabilities, uh, the customer, can use outcomes data that's provided by the service provider to identify what they've actually achieved. And if they haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve, they can then perhaps move on to another organisation that could better meet their needs. So I think outcomes data does actually allow us to accomplish a range of things. So from a service perspective, it provides us with information to drive service development and hopefully better meet the needs of a person with a disability. And from the customer perspective, they've got access to information that lets them make informed decisions about the services that they're purchasing. I must say, I think that that's one of the best things about the NDIS that it actually is, for, and why I'm so enthusiastic to have you in the studio today, Stella, just talking about outcomes and the positive impact of great services on the lives of people with disability. It's so much more inspiring than just talking about widgets. Absolutely. (laughs) And the number of clients one has seen or the number of activities one has undertaken and that sort of stuff. It is, but to acknowledge what you mentioned earlier, we have been obligated up until now to report on outputs, so those head counts, because that's how we were funded. But now with the implementation and the rollout of the NDIS, that has really shifted to focusing on outcomes. So what have people achieved? And that will influence the agency around decisions about what they will and they won't fund. So, Pascal, I might ask you, just because of the helicopter view that you're so often able to bring to these discussions, given your role at NDS, how, in an overarching sense, are providers measuring outcomes at the moment? Look, I think it's really varied. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) And I think in part that's because you've had, and with many things like with the transition of the NDIS, you've got this great scheme, you've got this great intent, but I think that there hasn't necessarily been that much done to actually support people to be able to put in place that intent. So what I'm trying to say essentially is that I think providers are often left to themselves to decide and determine how they're going to measure outcomes and what that actually looks like. So I think that's why I say it's really varied. It'll depend on how an organisation determines, look, what's the most efficient, most appropriate way of measuring these outcomes. And I think one of the many reasons why I think it's great to have Stella here today is because I think there actually aren't that many tools, from my knowledge, that actually support providers to measure and track outcomes in a systemic way. So you've got the Outcome Star, which is a limited tool. It's a great tool, but it's a limited tool. It it was a tool that came out of the UK, I believe. It came out to really support, I think it was primarily youth who are homeless and it has been since expanded but it still has that lens and it's really self-directed from the participant so the participant and the client works with the practitioner or whoever is supporting them to to fill out the outcome star I don't think it's transferable but not to every service type so while the outcome star might be helpful for say a support coordinator it wouldn't necessarily be that applicable to a support worker who's doing travel training and who's working really specifically to a particular outcome So that's why I say it's varied. I don't think that there have been really many systems out there that support efficient tracking of outcomes. And I think it's often compiling your case notes, talking to people, you know, getting things together. Happy to sort of hear from you, Stella, in terms of what your experience has been as well. Well, actually, Stella, how does Scope report on outcomes at present? So it does vary, similar to what you've been saying. 
It depends on the service or the support. So we obviously have our support plans that identify a person's goals and we do track progress against those goals. Up until now, it has been largely paper-based, that particular exercise. We also have a yearly customer satisfaction survey that does ask people about their outcomes and what they've managed to achieve. Again, it's paper-based, although we are moving to an online system for that. Within our therapy services, there's a range of things that our therapists do. So they use tools like our own MOS, they use the GAS, or they use the COPM or variations of these tools, and they use things like SMART goals. Again, predominantly paper-based. Often we probably find that there are sections within scope that might input this data into an Excel spreadsheet and then try to do some analysis that way, or they do paper-based analysis. We are, of course, in the process of implementing our very own MISO. So as David mentioned earlier, that's a product that we've developed and it stands for Measuring Impact and Service Outcomes. And what MISO does, or what the beauty of MISO is, is that it takes a way that paper-based data collection and it lets you collect outcomes data in a systematic and planned way and it does reduce the administrative burden placed on services, staff and people with disabilities. How does it reduce the administrative burden on people with disability? In a number of ways. So in the first instance, it's an online system. In the second instance, the surveys that we've developed, which sit within MISO, and MISO is an online outcomes app. Those two surveys that we've actually developed have been developed within a service environment. So they are meant to be quick and easy to use and collect data in an efficient way. So essentially what we think is manageable and achievable within a service context. And in terms of using a computer can be something of a mystery for some people still in this day and age. Does Scope basically provide capability development type training to people who are using the tool? Yes. So the two surveys that are hosted on MISO are a little bit different the two surveys that are hosted within MISO vary in what they actually do and how they're administered. So there's one survey, the Outcomes and Impact Survey Revised. That one is meant to be self-report. So what you can do is set up a kiosk-type environment, if you like, within a service or where the person with a disability is and work with them to provide information about outcomes. So that particular component isn't supposed to require specialised training to actually implement. The second tool is the short form MOS. That one's a little bit different. That one's administered as an interview to the person with a disability. Probably does require a little bit of training, but what we're working towards is developing some instructional videos for people to actually use. So we've developed MISO in the context of a service context. So we looked to the literature to identify what was on the market. So you mentioned earlier the Outcome Star. There's a whole heap of other 
surveys or outcomes measures that could be used, but we felt that these were limited in a range of ways. And one of the key things was that they couldn't be implemented in practice easily. So some of them were really, really good and did actually tap into outcomes of service provision, but you'd need about two hours for each person with a disability. That's not achievable in a service context. So we've tried to cut everything back so that you can do it as part of your day-to-day practice and during interactions with people with disabilities. I might just ask a question of you, Stella. You were talking about how you, or MISO essentially, is, is done while the service is being provided. Can you talk us through what that might look like, you know, in, in terms of, say, a support worker is supporting someone in their home? How might they integrate MISO into that service delivery? Yes. So again, it depends on which of the two surveys that you're actually using. So as I mentioned, there are two surveys hosted on MISO and the data collection should always be driven with a purpose in mind. So what I tell people is don't collect data just for the sake of collecting data. You need to collect data because you're doing something with it. So that will always drive when within service provision, you're actually interacting with people to collect data. So it really does vary. And often what we say is that you could collect data before a person starts accessing a particular service and then at six monthly marks, depending on what makes sense for that particular service. So it really does depend on the nature of the service and what you actually want to do with that data. But it is meant to be a conversation, but a structured conversation, if you like, with the person so that you can engage with them and obtain information about the outcomes that they've achieved from their own perspective. And I think that's another gap that MISO actually feels. Unfortunately, up until now, and we touched on this earlier, a lot of the surveys that have been available to the sector haven't been designed with people with disability in mind. So often what happens, and I think in many ways this is because we are quite a new field in relation to research. So often what happens is that we might take a survey from another related field. So whether that's aged care and use it within another context. And we make the assumption that that use translates well in the context that we're working. And that's not always the case. So if you don't have a tool that has been designed specifically with the end user in mind, it does really have an impact on the quality of the data that you're actually collecting. So what we try to do is develop two surveys that could tap into the perspective of the person with a disability as opposed to a proxy respondent. Just in terms of that tapping into piece, you made mention of the fact that you're collecting data through MISO prior to commencing to provide supports to the person with disability. What type of data are you collecting prior to commencing to work with an NDIS participant? So in the context of MISO, so it's the data that comes from those two surveys. So one of the surveys is the Outcomes and Impact Scale Revised. That one is a scale that was designed to collect whole of life, whole of person outcomes. So it's quite a broad scale. It asks the person with a disability to rate the impact of a service on nine life domains. The life domains were identified through a number of literature reviews. So we did look to the academic and non-academic literature to identify, well, what are whole of person outcomes for people with disabilities? We also conducted a review of policy documents. And what we found 
and I guess it would be no surprise to anybody, is the concept of citizenship and inclusion. So the domains that we're looking at are whole of life, whole of person domains, include things like personal wellbeing, economic life, cultural life, that sort of thing. It's quite a short measure. So it's a nine item scale. It takes about five to 10 minutes for the person with a disability to complete. So that's one that you probably wouldn't use before a service, but you would use once a service has actually been accessed and then periodically. So you could do it every three months, every six months, whatever makes sense for the particular service. In terms of the nine outcomes uh, for which you collect preliminary data, could you give us a bit of an insight into what some of those outcomes might be? I'm not expecting you to list them all, but... It asks about personal wellbeing, which includes physical health and mental health, cultural life, so whether a person is tapping into their cultural life, spiritual or religious life. We found through our research that that's important for some people, economic wellbeing. So are people able to find and sustain or maintain employment? And it asks about their environment. Are they able to access the environment? And how are people who, um, if you like, might exhibit um, challenging behaviour and have high intensity and complex needs, how are they supported to use the tool to make that sort of self-assessment? So again, it's very individualised and it would depend on the person and their capacity. So what we always say is we need to make a real concerted effort to support the person with a disability, to provide responses and give their views of the outcomes that they are achieving. So that might require that they have their circle of support with them to help them respond to the particular survey. Alternatively, and as a last resort, it may be that for some people, we do actually need proxy responses. So the proxy would be the person who knows the person well. So that might be a family member or a staff member, and they're to provide responses with the person with a disability in mind. But as I said, that's to be a last resort because we really need to make a concerted effort to get information directly from people. So... How many clients of Scope would be able to access this tool at any point in time? So we provide services to over 5,000 children and adults with disability across Victoria. Those surveys, because they've come from research, we've only validated them within an adult population. So at this point in time, we have evidence that they work well for adults. So not children at this point in time, but we have managed to secure some funding to adapt both of the measures so that they can be used with children and families. Fantastic. So that's part of the future, if you will. So it's capable of covering all of your clients, whether they be adults or children, as the case may be. Yes. What we're also hoping to do, David, is moving forward. So this is probably two or three years down the track is potentially some benchmarking. So if other organisations are willing to share their data, we can start benchmarking services and performance. So Stella, knowing the potential of the tool as we do from what from your description today, what's been the impact of the tool to date on the lives of participants? It's still early days, but what I think this does is give people with disabilities a voice. So to that point that I made earlier, we don't really have a lot of surveys or tools that are available to us that tap into the perspectives of people with disability. We have in the past relied on other people to tell us what a person has actually achieved. So I think what this does is provides us with an opportunity to hear 
the voices of people with disabilities and respond accordingly so we're better able to then meet their needs. So, Stella, I know that you and indeed Scope aren't doing this for the accolades, but what do you think that the award that you've received for me so will mean for Scope's customers and also the way Scope can lead by example here and inspire other service organisations to really get into this data and outcome space? Sure. So this month, we were quite fortunate in that we were listed in the Australian Financial Review Top 100 Most Innovative Companies Award for the development of MISO. So for Scope, this is a huge accomplishment. From our perspective, it does really demonstrate that investment in research and innovation really pays off. So even when times are tough, we all have really lean budgets that we need to work within, but it really does show that investing in research and innovation is actually a good thing. And it also highlights that services have the knowledge and the know-how to actually develop solutions to problems that we've identified. I think another thing that it highlights is the value of partnerships. So we have worked with uh, Social Suite, which is a technology firm, to help us come up with a solution. For the end users, so for the people with disabilities, I think it offers them some confidence that we have a product and processes in place that enable us to tap into information to drive service development and, again, better meet their needs. Just in terms of that collaborative partnership piece, how did Scope identify Social Suite as being the partner with whom you wished to collaborate? They identified us, actually. Oh, how nice for you. (laughs) It was really good timing. We had come to the end of a very long research project. So this has come out of probably more than 10 years worth of research. The last bit of research that we've been doing has been a four-year research project. And part of that was to validate the surveys and test the surveys. And we did that Australia-wide. So it wasn't just tapping into scope clients. It was across Australia and across a range of disabilities. We recognised relatively early on, or actually probably late in the piece, that we needed experts to do this. And Social Suite are a startup and looking in this particular area. So they had heard about our work and we thought it was a good bringing together of expertise. So they've really got the expertise around technology and how it might work. And we've got the outcomes framework. So we thought it was a good way to mesh our expertise and come up with this particular product. A happy marriage of mutual interests that essentially is focused on delivering outcomes Mm -hmm. for people with disability, understanding what those outcomes are. Yes. I must say, I'm so glad that you were able to join us here today and please stay for the rest of the podcast. But it's fair to say that when reporting on outcomes, getting specific, and I think this conversation really illustrates it, can mean the difference between the continuity of supports on the one hand and the cessation of supports on the other if it's not being done well. So it's great that tools like MISO are actually out there and in circulation within the sector. Certainly from my perspective, I think from NDS's perspective, it's great that we're having conversations about the importance of research and data and innovation at a time when prices for services under the NDIS don't necessarily, in terms of how they're set, lend themselves to innovation and further interrogation of data. Can I just add outcomes measurement 
as we've mentioned today, is important for a range of reasons. So the most obvious reason is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. But we must also remember that it can also be used to report back to other funders. So philanthropists, for example. So as disability services, we often look to philanthropy to top up our budgets or there are philanthropists who are interested in mission and therefore provide us with sums of money to deliver a particular service or to do something, increasingly this group of people are asking for more than just headcounts. They're wanting to know what impact has their money had. So it is a really good way to also report back to these philanthropists to show them how their funding has been used and how we leverage it to do other things. And I think within that, David, as well, there's another really important thing to highlight is the fact that, as has been a theme throughout what you've been talking about, Stella, is the fact that outcomes can also influence business decisions in terms of understanding what you as an organisation are going to do, whether or not you're actually going to cease a program and because, you know, maybe you're not able to achieve outcomes for people or maybe relook at that program. Why aren't we achieving outcomes? How can we better support people to achieve the outcomes that they want? But I think it's another really important point to highlight is that outcomes can really support businesses to understand who they are and what they want to do moving forward. And that's an incredibly important point to make in the context of work that National Disability Services is doing in Victoria to support boards in particular as the leaders of their organisations at a time when boards are actually almost crying out for more data and more information on the outcomes that the services of their organisations are achieving in order to actually make decisions not just for the now but for the next few years. The sector is an introspective per se but it's certainly in a reflective mode I think in terms of making decisions based hopefully upon data and the collection of data around outcomes as to what it wants to do or is capable of doing and what on an organisation by organisation basis it's no longer capable of doing for a variety of reasons and therefore having to make other decisions about the future of the organisation what it wants to do and what it can't do any longer. When we're talking about outcomes, another really central piece to raise is the NDIS and certainly the McKinsey and Company in their independent pricing review noted and noted quite significantly that, you know, the agency should consider trialling outcomes-based funding under the current sort of new changes to the SLES pricing model and the pricing framework around it is that providers are actually able to be remunerated for a particular outcome that they achieve. Pascal, what advice do you have for providers when they're reporting to the National Disability Insurance Agency? I think certainly in reflecting on the fact that we've had a really wonderful conversation with Stella just now about the way in which providers could maybe capture some of that data and being able to, I suppose, express that data and show that data, I think would definitely be a real strength to any provider report. Another key element that providers, I think, still have a bit of work to do, certainly not all, but some, in terms of linking those dots, appreciating that your audience or provider's audience, the sector's audience, is the NDIA. We know that the NDIA planners don't necessarily come from a disability background. We know that they don't necessarily have that background knowledge about if someone has behaviours of concern, what that means for that individual and what that might mean for the supports that they might need. So with that in mind, I think providers should really be writing to that audience, appreciating that, say, an allied health professional You've gone through maybe five plus years of uni. You're used to discussing things with other professionals. 
you might not actually be providing information to a professional who comes from that allied health background. An example which I quite like to draw, it's quite a nice one I think that highlights what I'm talking about. So there was a report that an OT wrote about the support that they provided to a young child. They talked about the supports that they did and how they worked with that individual to, I suppose, increase their fine motor skills. The individual's goal was around eating independently, was around sitting at the table independently. The therapist didn't make the link between what they were doing while working with the person to increase their fine motor skills and how that actually translated in their ability then to eat independently. People in the disability sector and people who've been in the disability sector for a while know what that means. It means you're working on your fine motor skills to be able to be capable of holding a knife or a fork. You're working in that environment so that you're then able to independently sit down and eat. But if you don't make that link for the NDIA planner, they're not going to be able to make that themselves. You need to be really explicit. We're working on on this child's fine motor skills because this will help he or she to hold a knife and fork independently and won't require mum and dad to feed them. So really making those links. And I can see Stella nodding. Did you want to have anything to add in terms of your experience? Sure. I think that's a brilliant example. And it really is being able to clearly articulate that so what factor. So you have all this data, but what does it actually mean in practice? So it's the interpretation, letting people know and getting them to understand what it means. So it's really reframing and retraining around how you articulate achievements and what something might mean. Yep, certainly. And I I only have to reflect as well um, in working with providers and putting their SIL quotes together as well. SIL being supported independent living. Sorry, David. Yep, SIL being supported independent living, where you're essentially making a case to the agency saying, this is why this individual needs this particular level of support in the house that we're, or the residents that we're supporting them. Providers know because often they've been working with those individuals for a really long time. They've been maybe working with people who might have similar sorts of needs. They know that when they say this individual needs two to one supports for personal care reasons, they know what that means. They know why that is the case, but the agency doesn't necessarily know why that's the case. It's about linking those dots. I think from the sector's perspective. So we know, but we know anecdotally. So it's that practice experience. Mm. But now what we really need and what has been lacking is that real um, evidence to support what we're actually doing. And that's what's so exciting about this space, I must say. That's, I think, a great harbinger of where the sector is going to be going in the future. So Pascal and Stella, do you have any takeaway advice or helpful resources for our listeners? My advice would be to keep it simple keep it contained, draw on the experiences of others and try not to reinvent the wheel. In the way of resources, people can visit our website if they like. There's a few pages there about MISO. There's also a white paper that we've recently released around outcomes. So that probably is a good starting point for people. Pascal, any advice you might have for our loyal listeners? I think taking what Stella said, keep it simple. One of the areas I think that people could probably beef up a little bit in their report writing is really identifying, okay, so we didn't achieve the outcomes that we wanted to. Why? Why did we not achieve the outcomes we wanted? Rather than saying we didn't quite get there in terms of sitting down at the table and eating independently. Well, why? 
What are the barriers? What are your future recommendations? On top of that as well, I think particularly where you're writing a report to support someone to go for a plan review, so where it's an unscheduled plan review, I think really being able to tell that story and being able to talk about the risk to the participant as well, again, in simple terms. So really, if you think that you've got some information that's related to the report, to the outcome or whatever, tell it because it probably will support the individual reading that report to understand what you're actually talking about so that they can make a more informed decision. So I should have asked you earlier, in terms of who we're writing a report for, it's obviously for the agency, for the LAC, for yep. the planners, at what level are we pitching the report then in terms of is it someone you know who might have been with the agency for three weeks or is it a more senior person or what's the story? I think you should be pitching it at the lower level because you never know. But also, you're writing a report that should be capable of being shared with the participant as well. So in that context, you're sort of closing out a whole raft of people regardless of whether or not they've got a disability by using jargon. So in that sense, if you can really spell it out for people around, this is what we did with you or with your child or with your son or daughter, and this is why... So I think understanding that the report isn't just for the NDIA. Yes, it's a key resource, it's a key document, it's a key bit of evidence, but it's actually also for the person with disability as well. So Stella, if providers were interested in using this, these tools themselves um, or sort of being able to access the system, how do they get started? Where do they start? So they can jump onto our website, which is scopeost.org.au and follow the links to MESO, which then will provide them with a demo of the actual application. Okay, some valuable advice there that we hope will help you effectively report outcomes which ultimately impact positively on the lives of people with disability. Thanks for tuning in and a big thanks in particular to Dr Stella Karitsis from Scope for discussing MISO with us. I'll never again regard it as just a culinary experience from Japan. <laughs> so I will always think of MISO now as being data rather than a soup. And thanks as always to our NDIS Transition Advisor Pascal Dreyer for her input today as well as part of the conversation. I'm David Moody, State Manager for National Disability Services in Victoria. If you found this podcast helpful, be sure to listen to the other episodes available that explore NDIS in action for service providers across a range of topics. If you have any operational questions about the NDIS or disability employment, you can head to our NDS Help Desk and ask. Available as part of NDS membership or free for providers in Victoria and Queensland due to funding from their respective state governments. Head over to nds.org.au forward slash helpdesk. NDS has produced a range of resources to assist Victorian service providers navigating NDIS operations for their business. Head to nds.org.au forward slash sdp to visit our NDIS sector development project website where you can access valuable information and resources in our NDIS resource library, Find podcast show notes, access our free online 24-7 NDIS help desk, subscribe to our monthly e-newsletter and find information and registration links for our NDIS readiness and implementation workshops, which we host right around Victoria in regions currently undergoing NDIS transformation. That's nds.org.au forward slash SDP. The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services, copyright 2018. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package. 